Good morning. If you have your Bibles, I'd encourage you to turn to the book of Acts. We've been studying it for a number of months now. We're in Acts chapter 9, verses 36 to 42. Acts 9, 36 to 42. Let's ask God to guide our time. Father God, on the 21st anniversary of the infamous events of 9-11, we ask, Lord, that you would bring comfort to so many who have lost loved ones, who continue to grieve a horrific day in our history. And Father, we ask that you would give wisdom and guidance, not just militarily, but morally and ethically to our president, to our justices, to our legislative branches nationally and locally. Father, it is obvious that we have lost our way in so many ways, and we need to return to morality and ethics, biblical truths. And so we ask that you might bring a revival to our lives and to our land. And Father, as we look at your inspired, inerrant word, may it not just be a lesson on history, a biblical story, but rather the living account of what you have done in the lives of others and what you desire to do in our lives, changing our thought processes, our hearts, our attitudes, our motives, our actions, our inactions. Father, transform us, move in us by your spirit through your inspired word. We ask this in the name of Christ, amen. One of my favorites from the Reformation era is Katie Von Bora. If you know anything about Katie Von Bora, she died at age 53, around 1552-53, right in the midst of the Reformation. When she was five years old, she entered a cloister covenant nunnery. Now, if you know anything about a cloister covenant nunnery, you know that their vocation, their job, is to pray. How many five-year-olds do you know that all day long and into the evening spend all the time praying, but that's what Katie did? In fact, she was so enamored with living for the Lord that she prematurely at age nine vowed that that would be her vocation for the rest of her life. I say prematurely because at the very earliest she had to turn 16 to dedicate her life to a cloister convent nunnery. At 16 she did that and she was a woman of impeccable character, a woman who knew the Lord through the word and prayer. She also was in the midst of the Reformation, part of the universal church, and she, along with 11 other nuns, 
began to smuggle in Reformation messages. Most of the messages she got were written manuscripts of Dr. Martin Luther. And they would study these manuscripts. And by age 24, she and 11 other nuns knew they had to leave the cloister convent nunnery, leave the universal church to join the protest. There are all sorts of problems with that. Although they technically were not prisoners, it was not allowed for them to leave the convent. How were they ever going to get out? They were smuggling papers in, but now we're talking about smuggling 12 nuns out. That's a bit different. And so she worked with Dr. Martin Luther through notes, and they devised a plan. There was a man, he was a contractor, who would come into the nunnery twice a week. He would bring big barrels of pickling fish. And he would bring these pickling fish barrels in, and then when they were more or less empty, filled with fish guts and stuff, he'd bring them out and then fill them up and bring them back in. And so on one particular day, he brought out 12 kind of empty barrels filled with fish guts and each one stuffed with a nun. 12 barrels stuffed with 12 nuns turned on its side. He rolled these women out and then he put them on a cart and drove it to Center City. Now, if you know anything about the Reformation and most of the pastors... Most of the pastors of the Reformation were former priests. They had come out of the universal church. They had seen that salvation is by faith in Christ alone. And they had become pastors. And when they left the priesthood, a lot of them wanted to get married. So 12 priests met the carts. And these women were looking, looking and smelling their best. And they popped out to see 12 very interested priests. Well, actually, 11. 11 very interested priests and Dr. Martin Luther. Almost immediately, 11 of the nuns and 11 of the priests, romance was in the air and marriage happened. But there was a holdout on both sides. Katie Von Bora had her mind set on one man and Dr. Luther wasn't sure he wanted to get married. It took him two years before he asked her to marry him. And by all accounts, it was a wonderful marriage. He was 41, maybe 42. She was 26. Almost immediately, the nursery began to grow. Together, they had six children. And then there was a relative who became an orphan. So she, they adopted that relative. They had seven. Then Dr. Martin Luther's sister died and they adopted her six children. Now they had 13. Katie, always bubbly, always joyful. Everybody loved Katie. Not everyone liked Martin. Everybody loved Katie. She used to laugh and say, I raised 14 children. 13 were easy, and she'd point to her husband and said he was not. Katie Von Bora. Imagine the impact that she has had in the shadows, think of what Dr. Martin Luther was used by God to do. In 1522, 
He translated the Bible into German, the New Testament. In 1534, the Old Testament into German. He pastored the Wittenberg Church. He was a professor of sacred theology at the once universal church uh, seminary, the uh, seminary of Wittenberg that became a Protestant protest seminary. He was a professor of sacred theology. He wrote many manuscripts. He wrote many manuals. Some of his sermons and some of his commentaries were translated the world over. And then reformers started to come to the Luther home. Well, who do you think entertained them? Who do you think grew the food, cooked the food, prepared the house? That would be Katie von Bora Luther. And then at night, after dinner and during dinner, they had what they called table talk, in which Dr. Luther would train reformers all over Europe. But if you really read the literature well, you know that he wasn't the only trainer. She trained many, many of the reformers in Bible and theology in a casual way at the table. Much of the Reformation not only goes to the likes of Zwingli and Calvin and Haas 300 years earlier or Dr. Luther, but it goes to a woman named Katie von Bora Luther. Some serve the Lord in the limelight some serve the Lord in the shadows. All are to serve the Lord with the gifts given and with joy. Katie von Bora Luther, a woman worthy of emulation, a woman who reminds me of today's woman in our text, a woman named Tabitha, also called Dorcas. I want to pick up and read in Acts 9, starting in verse 36. Now there was in Joppa, let's stop there. Joppa is a suburb of Tel Aviv. You may think that the most expensive city in the world to visit is Paris or London. That would be second and third. Actually, the most expensive city in the world to visit is Tel Aviv. It is the most expensive place to live now anywhere in the world. It's about a half a million people. It's 38 miles north of Jerusalem. It's on the coast. It's a city of about 105 years of history. But just north of that is Joppa. Joppa is a 5,000 year old city. It's a suburb now of 50,000. You know Joppa from another biblical account. Joppa is where the disobedient prophet Jonah was told by God, get on a ship. I want you to go to Nineveh to preach repentance. And he hated the Ninevites, no doubt, because in two recent events, the Ninevites had defeated the Jews. And so he got in the ship and instead of going to Nineveh, he went down towards Spain, towards Tarshish. That's Joppa, that's our place. Now there was in Joppa a disciple of Mathatria, named Tabitha, that's the Aramaic. Aramaic is a derivative of Hebrew, which translated means Dorcas. That's Greek. Remember that Luke is writing to Hellenists, people who have given up Hebrew and Aramaic. They speak Greek. They write and read Greek. So he gives us the Greek translation. Now there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. 
She was full of good works and acts of charity. In those days, she became ill and died. And when they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. Since Lydda was near Joppa, about 10 miles away, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two men to him, urging him, please come to us without delay. So Peter rose and went with them. And when he arrived, they took him to the upper room. All the widows stood beside him, weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas had made while she was with them. But Peter put them all outside, knelt down and prayed, turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, kumai, or Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes, and when she saw Peter, she sat up. And he gave her his hand and raised her up. Then calling the saints, a saint is not a dead person. In the Bible, a saint is someone who has been made alive in Christ. If you have believed in Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, you are a saint. Then calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive. And it became known throughout all Joppa. And he believed in the Lord. And verse 43, and he stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon, a tanner. Immediately, you and I are introduced to a woman who is otherwise unknown. Now, as we've been studying the book of Acts over probably many months at this point, we have found that many of the biblical texts have correlations, they have other manuscripts, they have archaeological evidence. There's lots of things that feed into the text to give us a, a broad understanding of what Luke is telling us as the divine author works through Luke as we read it and we understand the passage. That's not true here. The only thing we know about Tabitha or Dorcas is what is in this text. Now again, Luke is writing to a mostly Gentile audience. So he gives us Tabitha Aramaic, which is Dorcas, both of which mean gazelle. Now this is the interesting part. These are not names. There is no known nomenclature in any first century Jewish document in which a person is called Tabitha or Dorcas. It's just unknown to us. And I think what we have here is not her name, but her nickname. And the Bible is filled with nicknames, is it not? We use them all the time. Like we've already seen one in Acts. We have a guy named Joseph, a Levite, who is such an encourager, they call him Barnabas, son of encouragement. We have Simon. Simon is the poster child of a mess up, right? But Jesus, always the encourager, sees what Simon will become and he calls him Petros. Peter, which means rock. I mean, come on, the guy is clay. He is quicksand. And yet Jesus sees what in Christ, empowered by the Spirit, what you and I can become. And he says, Simon, you're going to be Petros. You're going to be rock. Well, I think that's what we have here. We don't know her original name, but she's called Tabitha or Dorcas, both of which mean gazelle. And I think the fact that we're given the nickname and not the original name, and we're given it remarkably in two languages, we are invited by the divine author to kind of speculate. Why is she called gazelle? Ultimately, we can't know, but I think the text gives us some hints. I think she might be called gazelle because gazelles are fleet of foot. They're fast of action. 
And she is that way. She is filled with good works. She is filled with acts of charity. She understands that ministry is inconvenient and ministry is messy. If you want to be in a convenient church and a church that isn't messy, you got the wrong church. Because real ministry is always inconvenient. If you and I wait for convenience sake in order to minister, we will never minister. And if we wait for a sanitized situation, we will never minister because real ministry is messy. That's why Jesus had the reputation of being a wine bubber. I mean, the guy is hanging around with the wrong crowd. Why? Because real ministry is messy. I think she's called gazelle because she's fast to ministry. Maybe she's called gazelle because she's gracious. Gazelles are gracious. And rather than seeing what a person is, she sees what a person can become. Rather than just hanging around people that might elevate her reputation, she hangs around people who have need. Like my Savior, Jesus. She's gracious. Well, regardless of why she is called gazelle, one thing is certain, she dies prematurely. We don't know how old she is. That's another question we're going to ask. How old is Tabitha? Is she a octogenarian? Is she like 90? Is she an octogenarian? Is she like 80? Is she a septuagenarian? Is she like 70? Ultimately, we don't know, but you read the text and you get the idea. She might be younger than the widows she's serving. So probably she is middle-aged. And from a human point of view, it's a bit of a shock that she suddenly dies. This is what we know. She lived out Psalm 90 verse 12, which says, teach us to measure our days that we might have a heart of wisdom. That's Tabitha. That's Dorcas, that's some of you. Teach us to measure our days that we might have a heart of wisdom. In other words, don't waste your life. In other words, don't just be focused on your job or your family important things or your recreation or your passion important things. But serve for an audience of one, Galatians 1, 9 and 10. Get involved, minister, Get messy for Jesus. She didn't waste her life. Teach me to number my days that I might have a heart of wisdom. Allow me to be like a Katie Von Bohr Luther. Allow me to be like a Tabitha or Dorcas. Allow me to use my time to pray for others, to study God's word, to share salvation by faith in Christ alone, to minister to those who have need to teach scripture, to model for the next generation. Allow me to use my time beyond my vocation, even beyond my immediate family, beyond my recreation, beyond my passions. Allow me to use my time to advance the kingdom of God. Well, this woman died. In the first century, when someone died, male or female, there's a procedure you must follow in the Middle East. They did not embalm in Jewish circles. Embalming is Egyptian. This is in Israel. They never embalmed. What would happen is this. A person would die and you would wash the body. 
And then you would anoint the body with all sorts of oils. You, of course, would shut the eyes. And then you would take some linen and you would wrap the body and you would put about 70 pounds of aloes and myrrh in. And then you would put the body on a beer, B-I-E-R, or a plank or a cart, and you would take it to the family burial plot. And hopefully before sundown, the service would be had and the body would be in the family burial plot. Because you don't embalm, because of the hot Middle Eastern sun, there's a lot of decay happening, which will emit offensive smells. You need to do all of this immediately. That was the practice throughout all of Israel in the first century. But it doesn't happen here. I don't know why. I don't even have a guess as to why. I don't think they're thinking resurrection. I'm going to make that point in a moment. But for whatever reason... They just wash the body, they shut the eyes, and they hear that, that Peter is in town. Well, not exactly. He's 10 miles away. That's a long walk. Oh, not for some of you, but for me, it sounds like a long walk in the Middle Eastern sun. And 10 miles is really 12, 20 miles because I got to get there and then I got to get back. And it's a two-hour walk there and a two-hour walk back. And let's be honest, Peter is an apostle. He's starting to, to have some some power, some influence. There's only 15 or 16 apostles in the entire New Testament. He's one of them. He'll be an author of scripture. He lived with Jesus for three and a half years. I mean, he's a mover and shaker, but they hear that Peter's in town. They call for Peter and Peter apparently doesn't have the big head because he drops what he's doing because ministry is inconvenient. Ministry is messy and he travels 10 miles there and 10 miles back. I personally do not believe that Peter is thinking resurrection. I don't think so. I think he's thinking homily. I can kind of picture those 10 miles of step. He's taking a few steps thinking, how am I going to open this thing? What am I going to say? What passage of scripture? How am I going to close this thing? I want to preach the gospel because you got to preach the gospel at every funeral service because there might be an unbeliever. How am I going to bring glory to God because that's what a funeral should be. And how am I going to honor a life well lived? How am I going to do all that? And he's taking these steps. He's walking the 10 miles. It's a two-hour uh, two walk. And I think he's thinking homily. I don't think in his wildest imagination, Peter, a fisherman, is thinking resurrection. I think we read resurrection in the text because we know what's going to happen. But you know how rare resurrection is in the Bible? In the Old Testament, you got to go a thousand years earlier to Elijah and Elisha, who along with Moses are probably the greatest prophets of the Old Testament. Maybe you throw in Daniel. I don't know. Those two each resurrected somebody and then the dead bones of one of them touched somebody else who came back to life. That's all you got in the whole Old Testament. Three. Then in the New Testament, of course, you have Jesus being raised from the dead. In Matthew 27, when Jesus died, the graves broke open and the dead rose. And that's not quite resurrection. That's like big time resurrection. We're not going to count that one. So you got three in the Old Testament. You got Jesus. And then Jesus resurrects three people. That's, that's it. You got Jairus' daughter in Matthew 7. You have the son of the widow of Nain in Luke 7. And then you have Lazarus in John 11. That's all you got. 
Oh, you might push back and say, what about Eutychus and Paul? Well, there's two reasons I'm not going to mention Eutychus. First, it's like afterwards. And second, if there's a chapter in the Bible every preacher hates, it's Acts 20. You say, whoa, did you say that? Well, let me tell you about Acts 20. Paul is preaching. He's waxing eloquent as all preachers do. And there's this guy in the window, Eutychus, he's, he's not listening. He's catching some Z's. He falls out and dies. And I say, ha, ah, you deserved it, buddy. <laughs> but that's not what Paul does. Empowered by God's spirit, he raises Eutychus from the dead. Now, let me tell you Highland's resurrection policy. We don't have one. If you fall asleep during my sermon, you meet your maker. But that's it. That's what you got. You got three in the Old Testament. Jesus and Jesus raises three in the dead. And I don't think Peter in his wildest imagination is thinking resurrection until Jesus' spirit says, Peter, Peter, forget the homily. There's something amazing about to happen. And so Peter arrives and some widows show him what this woman has done. Maybe she's a professional seamstress, I don't know. But she donates to these most vulnerable in her society and they're weeping. And the ver verse 39 is really undergarment. So she has created some things for these women and, and they're just so moved. It reminds me of the church I pastored in Pennsylvania. There was a group of women who got there every week and they made quilts and we would attach with a little pin uh, a gospel and they were given all over the county. I mean, hundreds and hundreds of these little quilts. Here, there's some women who have made prayer shawls and quilts that have been given to those who have had need. I think of some individuals, both formally and informally, when someone is sick, they send cards and, and others get on their knees and they pray. I think about the meal ministry. We have 60 individuals who have volunteered to give meals to those who are having surgery or hurt or sick. I, I think of the benevolent offering that is taken once a month and tens of thousands of dollars have been given to people in our community and across the world. And, and I think of when we have a funeral and some men and women volunteer their time to set up and take down and, and prepare for the funeral and to serve. And that's the heart of Tabitha, the heart of Dorcas, the heart of Katie Von Bora. Praise the Lord for that kind of heart. Well, Peter knew at this point there's going to be a resurrection. And so he dismisses everyone and he prays because Peter doesn't resurrect anyone. It's the power of God working through his servant. He says, Tabitha, kumai, Tabitha, arise. And she's restored to life. Now as I think of the text, a few things cross my mind. The first is, what is Tabitha's motivating force? What motivates Tabitha? We're told initially, she is a disciple, a mathetria. That's what dominates. Have you ever met someone you haven't met before? You strike up a conversation and Maybe at some point you say, what do you do? By that you mean, do you have an informal job? Do you have a formal job? 
Are you a homemaker? Are you a doctor? Are you a factory worker? Uh, are you a cook or whatever? What, what do you do? Well, she's a mathetria. What does she do? She's a disciple of Jesus Christ. That, by the way, is all of our vocations. If you know Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, you believed in Christ for salvation, you are a disciple. And God calls you, me, us, to minister not only when it's convenient, but inconvenient, not only when it is sanitized, but when it's messy. Tabitha gives us that model. In fact, it's attached to the gospel. It isn't the gospel, but it's attached to the gospel in Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and then verse 10. In Ephesians 2, 8, 9, it says, for by grace. Grace is what we cannot earn, we cannot do, we cannot perform for ourselves. For our, by grace you are saved, how? Through faith. Not baptism, not communion, not confirmation, not good works, not church attendance. For by grace you are saved through faith in Christ. For by grace you are saved through faith, that not of yourselves. It's a gift from God, not of works, so none of us can boast. And then verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus. Why? We would fill in, well, in order to be saved, in order to be forgiven, in order to go to heaven. All those are great answers. But that's not the answer in that text. We were created in Christ Jesus for good works. As a disciple of Christ, certainly we were created in Christ to be redeemed, to be justified, declared righteous, so that we would be saved, that we would go to heaven, we would be glorified and given a glorified body. All of that is true. But we are saved here on earth for good works. That's that's the definition of a disciple. What's the model? Verse 36, she's full of good works and acts of charity. That's what she's known for. She's known for works that are good and for charity. And I've got to step back and I want to ask this question. What am I known for? What are you known for? What are we known for? What is Highland known for? How would somebody else fill in the blank? Jeff is known for, and then they add the rest. Well, she was known for acts of good works and charity. I look out and I see some of you are known for prayer. If I need prayer, you're the one I'm going to go to. A prayer warrior. Somebody who doesn't just say, I'll pray for you, but really prays for you. Really prays for you. I have a friend, not too many rows back. I would say in the free church when he served at the national office, that's what he was known for. Oh, other things too. But he was known for prayer. Well done, good and faithful servant. Others are known for hospitality. You open your life, you open your home, you greet people, you welcome people. You don't just look for those that will elevate your status. You look for people who have need and you care for them. Well done, good and faithful servant. 
Some of you are known only by Jesus as a great giver. And it should only be by the Lord, right? Because that which is given in secret, the Lord sees. But he sees what you give. Well done, good and faithful servant. A disciple is known for acts of charity, good works. What are you? What am I? What are we known for? Tabitha is a model worth imitating. Third, this text reminds me that my God is capable of everything that doesn't violate his will. My God is capable of the miraculous. Sometimes in such a highly technological society, we forget that God is acting, God is moving, God is doing. Maybe you have an illness and you end up needing a nurse or a technician, a doctor or a surgeon, and they do a great job and you rightly thank them. But don't forget to thank the Lord that gave them the wisdom, that gave them the skill, that gave us the technology that allowed you to be born in this country at this time because God did it. Or sometimes he just puts his hand of healing upon you or his hand of grace upon you and let us remember to thank him. And finally, I want to think of resurrection. Being resurrected back to this earth is a rare bird in Scripture. It's not very common. I think there are a lot of reasons, but nobody who goes there wants to come back here. I think that's the big deal. Tabitha, short-term, lost. It was for the sake of the widows. Can you imagine breathing your last here and suddenly opening your eyes to see the glory and the splendor of Christ and more Christ with each passing moment and then you come back here? No thank you. No thank you. While we're here, we want to cling to our life. When we get there, we will only want that life. But the truth is resurrection is universal. It may not be universal back here, but resurrection is universal. All of us will breathe our last here and breathe our first in eternity. Those who know Christ will breathe an eternity of heaven. Those who do not know Christ will breathe an eternity in crisis and hell. But it's eternal for all of us. And so it behooves us this morning to make sure that we know Christ. The Bible is very clear. We all need Christ. Romans 3.23, all have sinned, wrong actions, attitudes, thoughts, motives, inactivities. All have sinned, fallen short of the glory of God. 1 John 1.8, if we claim that we have not sinned, we're liars and the truth is not in us. Romans 6, 23, what we deserve for our sin is death. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. That's why Christ, fully God, took on human flesh, lived a perfect life, and died the death of a sinner. He died for us, took our sin upon himself, and his death is effectual for those who by faith believe in Christ, believe in Jesus, receive him as Savior and Lord, 
Because you, I, we are eternal beings. And when we breathe our last here, we will breathe our first for all of eternity in heaven, knowing Christ, or in hell, separated from Christ. But while we're here on earth, we're called to live like a Katie Von Bohr Luther. We're called to live like a Tabitha, pouring ourselves out as disciples, not just serving when it's convenient, it never is, not just serving when it's sanitized, real ministry never is. We serve for an audience of one, Jesus Christ, for his glory as a thanks act of worship for this great God. Let's pray. Father God, uh, I thank you for the book of Acts. I thank you for all the lessons, some women and men who are ungodly and teach us what not to do, and others who are godly, of whom Paul would say, imitate me as I imitate Christ. No doubt, Tabitha Dorcas, Katie Von Bohr Luther, would say, imitate me as I imitate Christ. And in those areas where they clearly have imitated your son, may we imitate them, ultimately to imitate your son for your glory and our betterment. Help us to live for you. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen.